1: The room grows quiet and I have this um, almost sense of an angelic presence that just, um, and I'm asking in my heart, I'm just saying like, what do I do? And the voice says, be not afraid and do what you best see fit. And I call my parents and I, unfortunately, they weren't home. So I left a message on their answering machine and saying, I'm renouncing family and friends in search for enlightenment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, our modest theology and apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Chris O'Dinitz. I get to ask interesting people who've thought a lot about the big questions to share their conclusions, talk about what we know. How we know it, why we think we know it. And hopefully, through this kind of dialogue and back and forth, we will all come closer to the truth and have a really good time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, my guest for the second time is David Basil. Uh, He was our very first guest on episode one, uh, and now we are talking again on episode nine. David Basil is chair of theology at Archbishop Rummel High School in Metairie, Louisiana, in the greater New Orleans area beside Lake Pontchartrain. He studied systematic theology with an emphasis on natural law and has a master's of theology from the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology here in Berkeley. He and I have been friends for a long time. He's the godfather of my youngest daughter, and I'm the godfather of his youngest son, and so that makes us literally compadres, Uh, and it's a great pleasure to talk with you again, David.
1: Excellent. Me too. I'm really happy to be back, and I've really enjoyed listening to the Podcasts that you've produced since our our first one, uh, I just they keep getting better and better. So congratulations! Yes.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks very much. It, it, tomorrow it will have been seven weeks, and uh, hundreds of people all over the world have listened to our rambling conversations. Um, uh, and there's a map I can look at on the app that shows like all the different countries where people um, are listening and. So it's a real miracle of technology uh, you, our you you and I prattling along has been heard in uh, <laughs> India and Japan and Ireland and Brazil and Azerbaijan and even Vatican City <laughs> one person oh has done, yeah so um I hope we're not in trouble but uh it's uh um it's a great delight and I remember 10 years ago uh when i was first a graduate student of history how much effort i would put into giving a little conference paper and i would pack my clothes and take a plane and get a hotel room and go to a conference room and i'd give my paper and there'd be like 10 people in there and 3 of them were on the panel with me so they really had to listen and um it was so much it was so much effort and this is so effortless i'm sitting in my house you're sitting in your house it's just an hour we took on a saturday morning the chat and then the listeners also they're you know they're driving their cars or walking their dogs or doing some gardening and they can listen for five minutes or they can listen for the whole thing or they can jump to the next episode or a different podcast and nobody gets their feelings hurt you know like if you Mm -hmm. got up and left in the middle of a conference paper to go listen to Mm -hmm. a different conference paper i would be like wait wait (laughs) Mm -hmm. i have more slides but uh but this is this is very liberating
1: Yeah, it's the wonders of technology. Perhaps the one downside would be, uh, um, which we might see or might not see, is the lack of kind of preparation I've put into this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I wanted to say one more thing. I forgot what it was. Oh, yes. So 10 years ago, when I was a graduate student, I was sharing an office with a young uh, woman who was a, um, a historian of Britain. And she told us that our word gossip. Do you know this? Have I told you this already?
1: I have heard this, yeah, yeah. But go ahead. Okay,
0: yeah. Gossip uh, is from God siblings. God, so you would gossip was not a verb in the in the Middle Ages; it was a person. So your gossip, I'm meeting with my gossips, and those are your God siblings. So I think of our, you know, the bond, uh, at least in medieval England, between, and I hope today between our children that they should be as close as gossips. Um, So that's my that's my etymology for the day. (laughs)
1: Interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, last week, I talked to my old friend, uh, Joseph Nagel, and my old teacher, Heather Skinner, about uh, Catholic school at the elementary level. Uh, and um, you and I talked about um, secondary school and high school. And right. Joseph, in his introduction, said that he loves good food and bad dad jokes. And I totally failed to ask him for his favorite Dad joke, you know, because he was my guest. I was already thinking of my questions, and so I I resolved that I should ask every guest if they have a favorite, if they have a favorite joke. So, Mr. David Basil, get, tell us a joke.
1: Well, given the topic today about uh, Buddhism and my history in it, let's. Uh, what did the Zen master say to the hot dog vendor?
0: What did he say?
1: Make me one with everything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. So, uh um I want to ask you about your life your many years uh as a Buddhist and in the in the Zen Buddhist monastery. Um but today is Saturday the 12th of March is the second Saturday of Lent. Uh you live in New Orleans. How is Mardi Gras? How is Lent?
1: You know, you really don't understand how to feast without fasting. And um I think that in our culture like a uh, We don't really fast enough. We don't really understand fasting enough. And I never really understood fasting enough. But um, within the context of the Lenten season, that's really kind of Catholic culture that is an anomaly here in the United States. The Mardi Gras feast really prepares (laughs) you for that fast. You just can't (laughs) wait for Lent to come. (laughs) It is, um, you know, it's nothing what I thought it was when I was growing up. And when I uh, was in high school and I started hearing about New Orleans and Mardi Gras, I just thought it was this... uh, complete debauchery, um, which I was a, hopeful and excited to uh, be able to attend. But um, now, you know, it's it's actually quite a community building and um, family oriented event. Uh, there is, of course, uh, a variety of things that you can do on, on Bourbon Street. But um, apart from that, and it's really kind of restricted to that, the vast majority of it is just everyone going out and gathering on the streets and um, celebrating together, meeting new people. Everyone's hosting Mardi Gras parties. They, they, you can't even find a person to repair your air conditioner or your, your heater mm-hmm. on um, Mardi Gras Day itself. They're, the stores are all closed. You you can't go to the grocery store Mardi Gras Day. So we don't take off for Presidents' Day. We take off for <laughs> Mardi Gras. Day, And then yes. there's Lundi Gras, and mm-hmm. then there's you know Sam Gras. It, it it just spreads. And this is a it's a it's really amazing to be part of a, a community like this New Orleans area that is. Um, that celebrates the seasons and it has old traditional kind of cultural celebrations that are liturgical, that are based out of um, our uh, celebration of Easter and the 40 days of Lent that begin that. And uh, it, it's, it's really remarkable. It's really special to be here and to have uh deep my sense of my Catholic identity.
0: That is so beautiful. And may it remain that way. Forever, yeah, that doesn't join the rest of the world where everything's open on Sundays and everything else. So, um, fantastic. So, how are you observing Lent?
1: Oh, I am um, doing a couple things: uh, praying more and really giving more time in the morning for uh, Lectio Divina with the daily readings. Um, so, just trying to wake up a little bit earlier and trying to not jump into the busyness of grading and lesson planning um but to just to just uh, spend at least uh that time there as well as um fasting um from well certainly abstaining from meat but also fasting on fridays until lunchtime and then that, that just the hunger that i mm-hmm. i feel i um have been really kind of directed my mind towards the hunger for the word of, of God. Um, and so kind of every time I feel hunger, giving a little prayer and just trying to direct that, that hunger and that suffering towards our, our Lord. Um, spending. How long, yeah.
0: How long do you spend in the morning? How how long for the Lectio Divina?
1: I would say from maybe an up to an hour. Wow. And in that time, I mean, it's all—it's kind of like from the moment I pray, I do the Apostles' Creed. Right, sorry, for the moment I wake up, I do the Apostles' Creed, and so it kind of starts while I'm still in bed, kind of this this prayer, and then I go and I might be starting the coffee, and then I'll um, I'll read about the saints of the day, and then I will sit and open up the daily readings, and then the coffee might be ready, and I'll get up, you know, and I'll come back to the lectio divina. So it's a little kind of uh, a. <laughs> It's not like just sitting yeah. in a Zen monastery. <laughs> it's got a little movement uh, and and punching about in my day. Well, that's also helpful.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I'm not doing that much. I'm abstaining from alcohol and uh, I'm doing a daily rosary uh, for the for the Absolutely. Ukraine as the Pope Francis started us on Ash Wednesday, but also for many other intentions and. And trying to cult, like cultivate desire for it, not only like this is an obligation or something, something, but it's a very joyful time to spend, um, just with with God and with Our Lady.
1: Yeah, there's it, there's other things that I've added to it that, mm. um, I, I, which is beautiful. We do the family decade of the Rosie read together. Re, oh wow. um, Rebecca or I, mostly Rebecca, is reading um, four chapters or so from. The Bible, mostly to Ezra, but all the kids are listening while she's and or I would be doing that. Um, and then I've given up uh, screen time apart from work. And if Rebecca wants to watch some show or if a friend wants to play chess, <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, yes. I'm not. I'm not like a, I was starting to just like watch while doing the dishes. I would watch TV and other things like that. So I've given that up. Uh so there's a lot of little things in my life yes. that been passing through.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Thanks. Um, right. Uh okay. So, when we talked 7 weeks ago, um you you mentioned that you had lived in a Buddhist monastery and right. um I wanted to ask you that, but we put it, we put it, um, for the future because since it was a Catholic podcast, it would be weird to have the first episode be about Buddhism. So, but now (laughs) here we are on the ninth episode and I think it'd be, it'd be wonderful to go back and hear the whole story of your, of your faith, um, of your faith journey and your pilgrimage to, to the Catholic church and celebrating the, the part that you gained from, from the Buddhists and what you thought of it. And
1: great. Sure. Yeah, I guess uh you know it's a long and twisted journey. It is not one that is was um directly uh pointed towards um the, the the faith that I was baptized into as an infant. But um I really now looking back see God's hand working throughout it and uh I guess you could say that it um well, I'll just say a little bit by upping my my parents were uh both catholic uh had my sister and i baptized as infants but for a good part of my childhood i think my father has told me later that he was kind of really questioning his faith he was an atheist for a part of our childhood and basically we went to church on sundays as almost a kind of cultural traditional thing but there wasn't much of a sense of uh, piety or kind of devotion and um a, a religious life at home I, the, we never said grace before meals we never really prayed um the maybe the bible was brought out once on Christmas Eve to read from the narrative infant the infancy narratives but that was it um and by the time middle school came around and f- through my own um, kind of uh experimentations and a variety of things I started to just uh had that uh, middle school experience of angst and i am um, it's like depression, and then trying more things to try to fit in, and this fear of fitting fitting in started leading me down uh, several paths that were not really good and healthy um and I started to get kind of like a this this the sense of like i am i'm I'm suffering and I'm lost, and I don't know uh what life's about, but I kept searching for um kind of that the solution to that in just being cool, you know, and, and kind of like um, in worldly ways. And really, uh, in high school, I had this opportunity.
0: And, and we're talking about when you're a middle schooler. You're like 12, Yeah, that was in middle school. I,
1: yep, yep. Started just doing, you know, fooling around with. Um, and how
0: old were, I mean, sorry, uh, you're, uh, how old are you now? Or let me say, what year was this and where was this?
1: Yeah, so uh, I moved around a lot as a child. My parents were in Peace Corps, so we grew up in Iran and then in the South Pacific and Tonga and then in Massachusetts. I was, uh, there until about middle school, um, before moving to Tallahassee, Florida for high school. And so middle school, you know, that's seventh, eighth grade. That was 14, 15. And this was, I was born in 73. So this is mid eighties that mm-hmm. I start to, um, at that age, let say like, you know, experiment with sex drugs and rock and roll kind of a, a lifestyle. And um, which really led me straight into deeper misery and and questioning of of what life was all about. Um, But it was in high school as a sophomore, I I was selected to be able to go uh, through the State Department to the, the past the Iron Curtain. So this mm-hmm. would they mean. So right the the uh you know better than me the exact dates of things but the Berlin Wall starts to fall what in 88 89 or something
0: 89 in I think in October or November of
1: 89. So Come in on. that summer uh before the fall I was uh I went on this program to what was still the 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 Soviet bloc. went to um first Austria then over into Hungary um and into uh, what is the Ukraine? Um, and yes. Um, and then into Poland, uh, went, uh, to Auschwitz in Poland, went to Czechoslovakia before all that through East Germany, um, and then into West Germany. So it was a, it was led by the state department. It had a, um, real kind of a purpose and intent behind it all an educational component. Um, But one of the major things that happened to me there was in Poland, we visited um, Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And uh, in case the listeners don't know, Auschwitz was one of the main concentration or death camps um, for the Nazis. And at that time, um, again, I had kind of that personal sense of suffering, personal sense of existential doubt and questioning of life. But when I went to Auschwitz and saw uh, rooms that were just filled with eyeglasses and mm-hmm. um, and the extent of um, misery and evil in the world.
0: Um, I remember when I was in Auschwitz and seeing that heap of spectacles, you know, bones are bones and they're very poignant. But spectacles, they represent, they're so small and yet they represent so much effort and individuality and um love for each person to like help them see better and to measure things just so. And, and also the, the, the devotion to scholarship and so on. So it's a, not only murder, mm-hmm. but destruction of yeah, really good point. civilization and what's best about us.
1: It's at that point that I said, how could there possibly be a God? Not only am I suffering, but there, how could a loving uh, omnipotent God permit such evil to exist? And I I became, you know, a teenage teenager, <laughs> atheist. Uh, And I I saw hell just all around me and then the people that um, were around me. And um, and I, so in a certain sense, it set me on a path. Um, At the same time, uh, it's in 89 that my grandfather passes away and my mother invites our parish priest uh, to come to dinner. And I remember it was about two weeks after my grandfather died. So my mother's father is dead. And she asks him, uh, where is my dad now? Um, you know, mm-hmm. is he in heaven? And and the the parish priest said something to the effect of, you know, heaven's just kind of a story we tell people. Um, what the Yes. Yeah, this is our parish priest. And yeah. uh later who's one of you know, who he actually had, had affairs with parishioners. He was not a um it's certainly, a, a, he was a priest, sacramentally ordained, Yeah. yeah. but he himself, God, uh, if we pray for him, but was lost at the time himself. And <laughs> so I saw no real, from his own perspective, from uh, I saw no real path in the Christian tradition. My parents didn't provide it for me. Um, my parish priest certainly didn't seem to believe in the in the, the faith that he was uh, dressed in and cloaked in. Um, so I just, I went deeper into atheism. I started looking at philosophy, went off to college and um, it was, you know, quickly pursuing kind of from psychology to philosophy classes. And at some point in the second semester, my roommate drops out of school, but he stays in the dorm room. <laughs> <laughs> and, he just, he starts just reading Buddhist books and yeah. starts telling me about Buddhist books. And eventually I picked one up and it was, uh, it just like, it hit me uh, that the first noble truth, life is suffering. And I just said, yeah. yes, you know, this is what the existentialists were talking about. This is my own personal experience. This is what I've seen in the world. Uh, and, and then it lays out this path, right? And it's, uh, there's a cause of suffering. There is the truth of the cessation of suffering, and there's a path leading to the end. And as I read it, it it didn't require, it it didn't seem to me to require any sense of belief, any sense of um, faith in some other kind of divine presence that would um, save me, but just a kind of a a path of virtue. And I just, I could do nothing else almost after that, but just read Buddhist books and delve further into it. So much so that, at the end of my first year I decided to take a year off and just kind of like find myself because I, I, I didn't see really my, my family as giving me a sense of um, purpose and meaning and like happiness in life. I didn't see that my professors really had a sense of happiness and purpose. I didn't see it in the priests. So I wanted to find myself, uh, find the meaning of um, my, my purpose and, um eventually like i just kept reading these buddhist books and i remember at one point just reading um in a library in temple university reading uh the life of the buddha and it outlining how he himself struck by old age sickness the the sights of old age sickness and death renounces his family and goes off in the pursuit of um, enlightenment. Yeah. And so after reading that, it was, it's a strange kind of mystical so I could, experience. I
0: think you should tell us. Okay. Yeah. So, so Siddhartha Gautama was a prince yeah. in Nepal, somewhere like that, 500 years
1: yes. BC. Yeah. So and that's really important as we go deeper into like the, what Buddhism means. He is uh, born and raised to be successor to his father, a king, and with a certain prophecy around his childhood that he would either become a world conqueror uh, um, and expand his father's kingdom, or he would become a renunciate and um, bring kind of a sense of uh, salvation to the world. And his father and mother um, protected him from all possible sites of pain and injury and hardship so much to the point that anyone who had a gray hair growing up in his palaces was removed from the palace. Uh, if, uh, prior to him going from one palace to another palace, he would um, people would be sent in advance to clear the streets of any who were sick or other such. And so he led a life extremely protected, almost kind of... Um, well, we could say like you know helicopter parenting.
0: Yes, I was going to make <laughs> to a joke, experience. and then I thought I, I should. Have. Yes, I know some parents like this.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly, and uh and and so in many ways, it's his his life story is allegorical, and it, 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 so he's given everything. He's a, he's given tutors and athletic training, and at a certain point, after an evening of hedonistic indulgence with a. uh A series of uh, he wakes up around midnight or two in the morning and there's all these naked bodies around him. And he kind of just has a sense of disgust about it. And he escapes through um, the palace walls with his chariot drivers and he encounters uh, with the first great sight. uh, According to the tradition, He, he encounters an old man and he asks the chariot driver, like, what is this? Who is this? And the cherry driver says, this is old age and this is, will befall everybody. Um, and it kind of starts to waken him up, starts to have him question everything that he's received uh, and the kind of, kind of conventional truths that he's been told. Second night, he, he goes, sneaks out again and he sees uh, sickness and at the same um, question, like, what is this? And same response that this happens to all and the third night, he sees old age. And on the fourth night, he sees um, a funeral procession and a widow just in um, lamentations and and desperation. And and at that night, uh, after seeing that, um, I'm sorry, there's one more sight. He sees um, as well uh, on the fourth night, uh, a renunciate, a monk, someone who has Ah. given up the world in order to find the meaning of life. And it's at that point he returns home. And and the story is is that he looks upon his wife and his young child. He has a young boy. Um, Interestingly enough, the name of his young boy, he names his young boy Fetter. (laughs) A fetter is like a chain, a ball and chain that holds you back, right? So he he has given his name of his child a fetter. And he looks upon his wife and his young child in bed. And he renounces family, he renounces his his future, and um goes in search of um enlightenment. Yeah. And it's at that point I'm reading the story at Temple University. I'm at the age of 20 years old, and I and I had this mystical experience. The light coming through the windows in the library at Temple University just says like it becomes iridescent and the room grows quiet and I have this um, almost sense of an angelic presence that just, um, and I'm asking in my heart, I'm just saying like, what do I do? And the voice says, be not afraid and do what you best see fit. And I call my parents and I, unfortunately they weren't home. So I left a message on their answering machine and saying, I'm renouncing family and friends in search for enlightenment. Which, <laughs> 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 they, they kept the recording of this. <laughs> I'm sure it was back then still on tape. They still have the tape, which they have a uh, oh threat to play for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I do. I I take what money I have in my possession, and I um, imagine myself. So I, I get on a Greyhound bus and I go from Philadelphia all the way to. San Francisco, with the hope of begin coming a stowaway on a boat to Japan to enter a Zen Buddhist monastery. Um, but in San Francisco, I find, in the back of the phone book, a, uh, a Zen center. And what what year is this? This was March... Yeah, so this is 1993. Uh, okay. in March 3rd is when I left, uh, called my parents, and then... About five days later, I show up in San Francisco. Okay. Um, And so uh, that starts my entrance really into living at the uh, San Francisco Zen Center and their affiliated monastery in um, inland from Big Sur for the next 10 years. So from 20 to 30, I live in um, one of the... uh, San Francisco Zen centers, temples, either in San Francisco, up in Muir Beach in Marin County, or in the monastery proper for six years.
0: So, did you knock on the door? Did you ring a bell and stand in the rain?
1: <laughs> no, they... I, yeah. At the San Francisco Zen Center, I show up, I knock on the door, and I basically I say, oh, "I'm here," <laughs> and they're like, "Who are you?" And you know, uh, and they say, well, "Why don't you wait until we open?" And they close the door, um, and while waiting, I... While waiting, I happen to get mugged. <laughs> oh, perfect! <laughs> yes, okay. yes, yeah. yeah. very helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, real complete giving up of everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So eventually, they, they, you know, I, when they open up, I meet with um they the person who is um kind of the hospi- head of the hospitality and um we kind of I tell her a little bit of my story, and they're like, okay. Yeah, I look back on it now. They, they they find a spot for me to stay. And um, as long as I follow the schedule and, and it seems somewhat sane, uh, they manage to accept me um, there. And I, I go through kind of like the testing that they do to see if a person actually really wants to be there and um, has their act together.
0: So tell us yeah, so tell us about a day in the life and a decade in the life.
1: Yeah, uh, so the first 10 days in the monastery, you are pretty much waking up around 3.30 and beginning your meditation in the meditation hall uh, from 4 a.m. until about 9 p.m. at night. Wow. And this, this, is, this is kind of like the test. If you can survive this, then you're welcome to stay. And this you, is, y-
0: you are sitting in the Japanese style on your knees.
1: Correct. Okay. Yes. Uh, cross legged Then there's, of course, there's meals served in the meditation hall as well. Um, we had a little bit of a time for bathroom breaks, but that was that's the introduction, a kind of a initiation on into the monastery. Um,
0: what you said? Cross legs. Are you, are you sitting in the lotus, or you're sitting yes, on your sitting,
1: knees? It's really up you to the the
0: Oh, okay. So some people are sitting like you know, like uh, someone in a samurai movie with yes. the bent, bent knees and some people are sitting like the, the image of the Buddha in some Indian painting with a full lotus
1: for meditation periods proper we sit full half lotus um, okay and for service like for um, well we would you know in Christian tradition called liturgy for mass kind of equivalent for services we would sit in uh, that same right position Okay. Um, And then if someone has knee issues, of course, there's, they choose whatever, or a chair if they desire.
0: Okay. So it probably hurts like crazy your first couple of days.
1: I, yeah, in fact, I, uh, over the first year, I tear the, my meniscus just from sitting. Um, Wow. So it it was excruciatingly painful. It's something that one should gradually enter into, but I don't, I think I kind of take things to an extreme so yeah. i just jumped right in and thought this is what i'm supposed to do i'm gonna do it yeah. um yeah so so the winter time the zen monastery is closed for public and it, it there are two 90-day intensive um retreats and uh, with a schedule basically waking up at three thirty, going to bed about 9 nine thirty, with the through most of the time um until noon in meditation or lecture or class work for a few hours and then return back to meditation study hall um for the evening and that's for about 180 days of the year and in the summertime the uh monastery kind of flips over into being a retreat center and um a, it has a natural hot spring, so it's a resort, retreat center. And really then the schedule is much more focused on work and service.
0: What's the what's the name
1: of the monastery? Tassara. Tassara Zen Mountain Tassara.
0: Center. And you can go there this summer, right? Anybody can yes. sign up on their website and go join and eat a simple meal of lentils and meditate and <laughs> pray and
1: chant no. and so on? Yeah. No, they're actually uh, they're, the food is incredible. It's vegetarian gourmet <laughs> cooking for the guests throughout the summer. This oh, is, I see. This is much more than just lentils. Yeah, that's, for the that's, monks, that's... <laughs> lentils. Yeah. For the guests who come and pay the hundreds of dollars per night, they get exquisite fare. Yes. Yeah. Someone once said that the Zen Center is a food <laughs> cult with Buddhist overtones. Yeah.
0: <laughs> There's a asceticism I can get behind. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So uh, we're talking about my spiritual journey and it, it's interesting yes. like throughout that time the 10 years of my life at the uh center i never felt like i was i'd given up being catholic i mean objectively i'm i'm bowing down to the buddha i'm offering incense to the buddha mm-hmm. i'm uh, chanting kind of like weird buddhist phrases but um in, in my heart i never actually felt like i was i had given up being catholic and would often have conversations with the, the buddhist monks about christianity and buddhism and one of the amazing things that happened to me there was a uh, um a man brother david Stondel rost he is a trappist monk um who is a hermit uh, has been a hermit for a while but he had himself been at the zen center as a trappist uh granted permission this is this is during the time of uh, thomas merton and other things like that he had granted permission to go to the zen center and participate, um, with the Zen monks, uh, uh, when the, the founder, um, the Zen master from Jubei and Suzuki Roshi was there. So we have yeah. a, so this man continued to visit the Zen center and he would meet with the students. He would hold talks. He would, um, hold discussions, dialogues like between the abbot, the Zen Buddhist abbot and him, uh, on the, um, kind of a, interfaith dialogue between zen and christianity and it was the first time in my life that i met who i would regard as like a a christian one and of course my parents are christian i get their objective and the the priest that i knew growing up was christian but here was a man who lived his faith here was a man who his eyes just sparkled with the joy of christ and and he um and I would go and I would meet with him and I would have these one on one conversations. And um and he blessed me. And it was like I broke down in tears when, when when he um like he just used his thumb and put the sign of the cross on my forehead and and blessed me. And um it was from that point on that I felt like Christ started to call to me and I started to read the Bible in the Zenbus Monastery. I spent my time reading the Bible and reading the gospel. And uh, it, at some point during all of this, I, the, the Zen center really starts encouraging me to get back in touch with my parents. Within the first year, they're like, come on, you got to, you got to, your parents are concerned about you. It, the Zen practice is not about, you know, cutting off your relationships with your, mm. your parents. Talk to them. It's about growing your heart. And they were so good. They, they, they were patient with me, um, understanding, and they, but they were adamant and encouraging that I, get back in touch with my, my family and so i did my um and uh i would then take some vacations and go back home and i remember going to mass with my family and i couldn't believe it it was it, it made sense um oh, yeah. i just like i could see the whole the whole liturgy as a the drama the spiritual journey and i interpret it with my buddhist kind of eyes at this point but I started to just, my heart started to open to the faith and to see what was um, what was being done in the faith. Um, so, so, yeah, after <laughs> <At the> six <laughs> years of the monastery, I meet a woman. And uh, because during the summer, the, women and men practice together in uh, Buddhism in America. And I meet a woman. Uh, we fall in love. We... Ask each other. We ask her to, to get married, um, and we decide to move to the Zen Center in San Francisco, and find out that uh, we're pregnant. And so, um, we we do marry. We have our first child, and after we we live for another three years in San Francisco, um, at the San Francisco Zen Center, working for the San Francisco Zen Center. But in those three years, I. I struggle with trying to maintain the the zen schedule which they have of meditation and sitting and services and kind of like the family life and trying to balance the two is too much for me mm-hmm. and so i start I, I i i feel like i'm if i do one i fail at the other and i if i go to the other then i'm failing at, at the this uh, i can't do both. Um, and so I, I decide uh, it's time to go. It's yeah. time to um, find a, some vocation, some career in the outer world, and really support my family. Um, so that leave, I leave the Zen Center after 10 years, and enter into the sustainable agriculture. Um, and at some point when we're looking for education for our um, son, uh, my wife and I uh, get exposed to Waldorf education. And through the Waldorf education, uh, we we decide to go, my wife decides to go and join the training to be a Waldorf teacher in Sacramento, California. And so we move out to Sacramento um, and discover that the Waldorf education has its, its roots. Uh, a man named Rudolf Steiner, who also is incredibly esoteric, Christian, um, but a Christianity that is really odd. Um, uh, hmm. That's a conversation for another time. Yeah. But I get could be, that could be our I'm next episode now, but...
0: in seven weeks.
1: <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> so uh, eventually our marriage starts to fall apart there uh, in Sacramento. Uh, my son is now probably in the fourth grade or so, and my wife. Um, and I, who had been married in the Zen Center, were both baptized Catholics, were married in the Zen Buddhist ceremony at the Zen Center by the abbot. Um, so not a not a by form Catholic sacramental marriage. Um, but our, our marriage falls apart. And at this point, I decided to go back to college. I had been a college dropout. I complete my undergraduate degree with the intention of uh, pursuing um, studies on Aquinas and aristotle
0: and where did you go to college
1: so I, I my college was just a kind of a college completion program in san francisco so it was a at a distance learning um, graduate complete uh, undergrad completion program at the and new you are college.
0: both uh, you're both raising your son sort of co-parenting but not but no longer married
1: no longer married right and she moves yeah. to berkeley and i'm still in sacramento while he's finishing yeah. off his um his sixth grade year. And then I entered grad school at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. And uh, really just to study Aquinas and Aristotle um, with no thought at all of uh, Catholicism. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Little did I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, God had kind of led me with mm-hmm. this uh, there and. I even remember meeting my faculty advisor, who's a Dominican um, uh, priest, and, and telling him, like, yeah, I don't, I'm not really into Catholicism, uh, you know, and I list a variety of reasons of why. And he's just, okay, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and all my professors are Dominican priests. All my professors are incredibly wise and understanding of the tradition. And, and I am. This is the first time that I've encountered, the, uh, really, the Western tradition, but, but especially an intellectual and contemplative and spiritual and deeply religious and faithful Christians. And um, I am, it, I discovered that Christianity was nothing that I thought it was growing up uh, or just what I thought it was as I interpret it through my Buddhist lens while reading the Bible on my own. And I take on the spiritual director, uh, another Dominican priest. And he is, he's just, he's a saint in my life. He's just the most beautiful man who just walked with me and journeyed with me from where I was and encouraged me and started to show me, um, the vision of, uh, the church, the vision around, um, Christ, of course, and of the church, but also at this time, after my divorce, I had taken up with another woman who, um, herself was, came from a non-denominational evangelical Protestant upbringing, speaking in tongues, laying on of hands. And she was deeply Christian, had her own son. I have my son. We start cohabitating and, um, so we're living together and we are acting as though we're married and we uh and she's introducing me to like a kind of side of christianity i'd never experienced before which is like personal hmm. prayer and spontaneous and from the heart kind of like uh a prayer life and um and now i'm meeting i at this catholic school and um and my spiritual director who's the the president of the the Dominican school. He is, he's telling me the vision around sexuality and sex and marriage. And, and I, I couldn't believe it. That marriage was actually a sign of, um, of heaven and our love and union for God. And, and that the, the problems and the challenges around cohabitation. And, uh, I start telling my, my partner, um, name is Rebecca. And, mm-hmm. uh, and she starts being interested and she, she starts learning about the theology of the body. She starts coming to Catholic mass with me. I I do my first confession. The only confession I'd ever done since I was like before first communion, Like I had wow. only had one, one confession growing up as a child. I never went to communion classes. I never did, never went to parochial school. And, um, so I had my first confession, And I, I couldn't believe it. Like many of the sins that I had taken up as a teenager, I continued throughout my time at the Zen center. But after that first confession, they were lifted from me and so many burdens were just lifted that, um, I joined the RCIA to, uh, in order to be, to kind of learn as an adult, my faith and to receive uh, confirmation my wife joined rci well not my wife. rebecca joined in on the rcia i had um, started the process of then getting my first marriage annulled um and then rebecca and i became engaged she joined into the church with her son she was received into the church and uh shortly afterwards we were married in the church by the um my spiritual director and, and the man that started guiding the both of us on, uh, really the meaning of marriage and of our sex and of our sexuality and, and by the grace of God, right. By the grace of Christ. Yeah. Um, so many of our, our wounds in our lives, her own kind of background, um, around, um, having a child out of, out yeah. of wedlock, her own kind of sex and sexuality, my own wounds around those issues. Um, with the with the sacrament of a of Christ in our marriage, like um he continues to just pour his graces onto us and
0: yeah.
1: has provided us um you know four more children and mm-hmm. uh my life is just we're we're given over to uh, the ministry of education and and the work for the church.
0: Yeah. Well, I got to be at that, that baptism for Rebecca and I was at your wedding and I had it such, a, it's such a beautiful thing and I'm privileged to be there with you. Um, let's see. Uh, do you think that voice in the library where you first followed Buddhism, what do you think?
1: That's a strange one for me. I haven't fully reconciled it with, with it. I, I do think, I think that, Somehow or another, throughout my life, God has never left me. Yes, and he—he he is a loving God, and he—he—he he, um, he has called me by name. I was baptized as an infant, and I could—he would never let me go. Uh, but I didn't know him, and—and and I think he—he's always able to bless the choices that we make and offer us and guide us to, um, ultimately back to him. And I think that it, it, uh, so that voice in that library where I was, I, I, you know, there were certainly times where I questioned whether I should continue living and what the meaning of my life was. And was I just like, somehow a mistake, uh, not not a mistake in conception of my parents, but like, was there something wrong with me? Mm. And, and somehow or another, um, I felt like that was the first moment of my voice where there was a voice, the first time in my life, there was a voice from beyond that came with a sense of peace. And just to to, to leave the world, as I knew it to find something else. Um, and it 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 couldn't have come through Christ at that time in my life i just I wouldn't have accepted him. I don't know how I could have you know if maybe but like um when Jesus goes upon Peter's boat and gives his sermon um to those on the shore, and then um Peter says, you know um, leave, uh, leave, for I'm, I'm a sinner, and then, and Jesus then tells him like, um, leave, abandon your nets and follow me. <laughs> um, there is something in that, like to just to, to leave what you're doing, leave your yeah. world, especially as a twenty year old, without a kind of attachments, really in my life, without any kind of family and obligations that, that to to just to leave and start to follow him. And so I don't really know. Like it, I do feel like it was an angelic voice, um, and it and it did have some of the words that are so common in scripture, like "be not afraid, yeah. go and follow what you best see fit." Yeah,
0: yeah. There's very. You have you're a real uh, prodigal son. It's a really beautiful um, arc, and. Um, Meandering path home. Um, So, I love Buddhism. I, when I was, uh, you know, in in, uh, probably about the same age as you, I spent many happy Thursday evenings at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, which is a Chan Buddhist uh, monastery across the street from my high school and down the street from um, Cal, and one of the one of the monks there used to say like oh we're like the catholics of buddhism because they had all these you know statues and gold things and incense and dragons and and beautiful thing and i just love going there and just sitting quietly and hearing the traffic in the distance and smelling the incense and 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 being still and all of those things that the the stillness and the peace that i would then carry with me afterwards you know i that's not unique to buddhism of course i think you know you will find that in in, in many faith traditions certainly uh, in sitting quietly in the church or, or adoring the the eucharist that sort of thing but you know what i the problem for me with being a buddhist was that there really wasn't a god in it and it was more renunciation than returning to a a, a something let alone a someone yeah. Uh, and I feel like I don't think the first noble truth—that all life is suffering—is true. It's <laughs> it's not that like oh there are uncomfortable things here and there uh-huh. because it, it the premise is that your attachment to the things you love will only lead you to suffer when when they are taken right. from you. You know right. a parent, a child, a friend, a spouse. Or, you know every beautiful sunset is about to end. All of those things to me. <laughs> like that doesn't bother me that they'll soon be gone and i think their transience makes them more precious and what's more is like everything i love for me has an eternity to it every time like this morning when i took up my my picked up my child and carried her from her bunk bed to the breakfast cuz that's our morning thing like okay so soon she'll be too big for that and but that doesn't mean that this moment is not eternal and that it won't stay with yeah. me and beyond me forever so i i don't see that first noble truth as being true
1: Yeah. uh, So I think that there's a subtlety to Buddhism, which um, is very hard to just understand without those kinds of years and years of practice. But Uh, yeah. 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 In fact, I would say that um, the translation Life is Suffering is a poor translation. And Mm. no, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a Sanskrit Pali scholar, but I think it's more accurate to say dissatisfying. Um, and and again, in, in that original statement of the Buddha, it's like all conditioned things are dissatisfying. All right, so what about the unconditional? Uh God is not really brought up in Buddhism. Um, but he does he does, Buddha does give hint to it. He says there is the unborn, there is the unconditioned, there is the undying. But he said, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here just to yeah. talk about suffering, its cause, its cessation. So I think that... Can I ask to... you,
0: this is a, uh, this is sort of a, um, a, a very simple question, but I just don't know. Does Buddhism carry over all of that stuff from Hinduism with um, Brahman, Vishnu, Shiva, creation, preservation, destruction, and the whole big universe that is a pantheistic God and we are all part of the same song, we are all drops, part of the same ocean?
1: yeah that's exactly what the buddha tries to argue against in many ways so okay he he grows up in a hindu culture and he is hindu and um and then when he has his night of enlightenment the main insight that he has is this this uh that that the very core of the hindu tradition is not true (laughs) so so we have to step back i think what you bring up is, is very accurate uh To understand buddha you have to understand hinduism to a certain extent hinduism um has a story where there is this ultimate reality brahman there's this ultimate reality and it's beyond any human conception and it's beyond anything that you can uh exactly point to and it's it's not exactly your body it's not your personality it's not your feelings it's not in this, but at the very core of who you are, you are this droplet of Brahman. Mm-hmm. You are a droplet that seems to be separated from the ocean, which is the divine, which is ultimate reality, and and so that that droplet within you, your very inner essence, is Atman. They say Atman. Uh, and uh, the, the realization in Hinduism is that Atman is Brahman. Atman yeah. is just a droplet of ultimate reality. So, in a certain way, everything and everyone is ultimate reality. Every I am God in Hinduism. Yeah, and that is so. So, uh, when Buddha, that its, to
0: me that translates very nicely into Christianity, where I am a creature and I have div- the spark of divinity within my soul of souls.
1: Yeah, this is actually what I think is is very. I think it's actually really opposed to Christianity. I think you're right. We have this, like, uh, we're made in his image and likeness. So we we reflect uh, that spark of divinity within us. But they're not saying, like, we are a creature that, you, that the fact that you feel like you're a creature and separate is a fundamental illusion. You are actually God himself. Uh-huh. And yeah, that's, that, not that, <laughs> that's not Christian. We are not the creator. <laughs> yes. And, um, and, you know, of course, uh, someone who is actually a, a great student of Hinduism could um, tell me I'm wrong in my, my understanding of it. But That's what I basically grasped from Hinduism. And Buddha says when he looked, when he spent that night, uh, those seven nights just sitting to meditate, he could not find this Atman in him. Mm-hmm uh and so his first his main teaching is anatman that there is no essence of who we are that is one um you know part of god or uh, only under the illusion of separation so the buddhist teaching is there is no self there is no atman there is this no droplet of god within us um and that's that I think we would agree. With. We're not, we're not a droplet of God. We are a creatures made in His image and likeness. Yeah. Um, now, of course, our very being part. Anyway, the, the, the so, is.
0: if you're a Buddhist and you achieve enlightenment and all of your illusions fall away, what remains?
1: That's where it, I have problems now. But, right. So. There, so Buddhism, so this sense of like suffering is this attachment to the conditioned world that's going to be able to provide us full satisfaction. And I think Christians would agree that the world, the conditioned things, creatures cannot give us all that we're looking for. Yeah. And that only God can give us that. Yeah. And and so... It's, that's a, that first noble truth that life is suffering well life is the the attachment to thinking that this world is going to satisfy me is going to be suffering yeah yeah and so that's where i think that buddha's right on but his metaphysics about what a person is then like is where i think he starts to go off because then it takes on like we're there's no atman there's no droplet of uh, i'm not just a droplet of god and uh, there's no permanent the existing un, uh, unconditioned part of me. Um, it's, he says, who we are is just kind of like this co- these five collection of properties, like physical matter, feelings, uh, mental kind of states, and consciousness, just come together. and that there's nothing, there's no thinker beyond the thoughts. There's no soul that is uh holding all these together there's no subsidence it's just all these kind of accidents that are happening to come together and that's uh so i think the metaphysics of buddhism start is 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 a reaction in some ways to hinduism and then you have um right there's there's no one actually there so the enlightened state is is like this incredible presence free of all attachment to oneself and one's suffering and just, and just being totally present with what is arising and recognizing one's connections to it all. But there's no one who really is there to love, or there's no God who loves me.
0: Yeah. Aye, that's really hard. This sort of an evaporation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, it's so it it, it I, I mean and maybe because I'm just a creature of attachment and and illusion and delusion, but that doesn't that doesn't resonate with my what I understand to be my soul, which is a loving and real and individual and yet collective part of uh, a fabric, a fabric made by a grand weaver with a capital W, with uh, with attachments to people I love and and so on and um, so interesting.
1: Yeah, and it's not um. So I think that Christianity, at least the Catholic tradition has taken on like a, a metaphysics that a person is a body soul composite. They're, they come together. Um, we, there's a distinction between the soul and the body, but they the person is the two. Um, and, and so the, these kind of accidents of height and weight and my particular relationships, those are there and held by um the the substance of the soul um this may get a little well
0: and cheap. also the body is the body is on its way out from the moment we're like we are dying from the moment <laughs> we're born we're stated to decay you should just look at my knees and my my ankles and like my youth is fleeting and my hair is vanishing and my my teeth well, are yellow wisdom,
1: <laughs> your wisdom is going chris yes yeah. and your love is expanding so, yeah um, yeah right but we're not so, in, in in a certain sense, Christianity recognizes that, but and that our soul will persist afterwards, and, and it's immortal. But we're not exactly complete when we die. If, we, if by by uh, be God's will and our fortune, we go to heaven, we're not complete yet there because we believe that we are will get our bodies back at the second coming. Yeah. So even within the Christian understanding, we recognize like. The body soul composite is what a human person is. And yeah. we need our bodies back at the end of time, that there will be a new earth, a new heaven, and they'll be they'll be together with our bodies and our souls.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I understand that. And for me, this is tricky. And I know this is kind of a new topic, but like I always imagine eternity not to be a tremendous amount of time i just remember i imagine it's like it's your outside of time you know and and sometimes when we tell the story of what's heaven like to our kids we're like well you know it's going to be all these wonderful things and you're visiting your friends and you're having a picnic for thousands and thousands of years. That's not how I imagine it at all. I sort of imagine that we step outside of all of these constraints that we, as if like, let's say your life is a comic book and I can flip back to when you were little and I can flip forward to when you're old uh, and I can see today on page 17. And so I don't think eternity isn't one that goes from age one to 99, but one to 9 million toward infinity, but rather like we're yeah. no longer in the book and we're sort of holding it together and looking at it. And
1: Yeah, this is something like if I wasn't teaching and I didn't have little kids, this would be one of my research projects because I don't I have no idea really what heaven is like there. And there's a lot of work that I need to do yeah. in this regard. There, the, one thing is so heaven is where God dwells. And so. So the then, church. it could be
0: right here, right? Exactly. Isn't it all yes.
1: heaven? As, as Jesus says, like the, in the Gospel of Luke, heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's at, at hand. hand. At yeah. hand.
0: Yeah,
1: it's at hand. It's and and the the picture at the beginning is heaven and earth are joined together, and God's presence dwells in creation with Adam and Eve. But it's this at the time of sin, like God doesn't create hell. They're nowhere in the acts of creation is is yeah. hell created by God. But it, when we fell we then tore heaven apart from earth and created and hell spilled out onto the earth. That's the way I kind of like see this this picture. And, and, and from that moment on, God worked uh, to bring heaven and earth back together and his presence in the uh, tabernacle in the, the fire on Mount Sinai is where again, heaven and earth come. And then finally, jesus himself the son of god who is heaven and earth together who is fully divine and fully human and then with the gift of the holy spirit to the apostles and the church uh, we see like the the descent of the fire upon their foreheads just as the pillar of fire upon the israelites showed the presence of god on earth in the wilderness now we have picture of uh the churches now where heaven and earth is Present where God dwells in the world and, and the Holy Spirit kind of um, yes. weaves. Yes. So th- so this this picture of because it,
0: we are because where we because we are the church and because where two or three are gathered in my name I am with you.
1: Right. So like so in a certain sense there's an eternality to heaven, but there's also. I think there's also time in heaven and this is where I could be totally wrong, but like when, so time is the measure of before and after there is a time before St. Teresa of the Sioux entered into heaven. And there's a time after she was in heaven. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, Yeah.
0: That's still so linear. I just think like it's a place and you just go there outside of time. And this is total speculation. And, um, um, yeah, but, like a, I feel like in the in Buddhism there is this too, where you know the 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 riddle, the koan of yeah. Buddha plucking a flower, and then you're like, oh, it's a, the whole the flower. That's it. Like right in here, in this tiniest atom of beauty, is contained the entire universe of beauty. And I sort of feel like that whole what, what you just said. It is here. It is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. It is here. It is here. It is here. Like eternity is is at all times, you just have to sort of step outside in, in mm-hmm. almost in a Buddhist way, just step outside and right. the, the the scales will fall from your eyes. And so now it's easier said than done because I might feel very close to God one second and then I get an email that says, well, you didn't turn in this paper. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> or, You know, or like, oh, I'm late for a meeting," blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right? And all that all it all comes crashing back on me.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is where I think that Buddhism is the, the furthest that the human can go naturally to that experience of God. Yeah. Because you do have um this this kind of as you said, like the Zen Con that that it's not just about wrapping your mind around and thinking and grasping and understanding what the experience of eternity is in the blade of grass, but it is it's um, is just actually being fully willing to be present in what activity is happening without attachment with but just with actual recognition this is it that this yeah. and and so in some ways, like I, I think a lot of the um the saints within the Catholic Church, especially kind of the mystical ones, really touch upon that and we so we see in the the little way of Saint Teresa the Sieux like her giving greater glory to God in a smile or in, uh, doing the dishes. That's, that's like, that's, that to me totally aligns with this Zen understanding of, um, you know, when the, when the, a new monk showed up to Zen master Zhao Shu and said, I'm, I've just entered the monastery. Um, what should I do? And he says, go wash your bowls.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had a mentor who used to say before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After yes. Enlightenment, chop wood, carry like on. It, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, how about this? And um, I kind of lost my train of thought. Uh, shoot. Oh, I know. How about this? Okay, you—you, you, I'm sure you, you, not only as a teacher and a Christian scholar, but as a parent, know all about um, C- uh, C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you know how in the last battle... Uh, Aslan leads, leads his people to a new, to a new world. And he's got that one faithful Calorman guy who, who is a devotee of Tosh, the vulture headed monstrous deity of that people. But he has lived his whole life in virtue and, uh, and piety. And so Aslan says to the young Calorman warrior, Calorman knight, I don't know, uh, all the all the service that you have given to me in the name of Tosh, I attribute to myself. And then all of the things that people have done, you know, all the horrible things people have done in the name of Aslan, that's really in the service of Tosh, meaning the the devil. And likewise there are those dwarves who who refuse to see the new world and they sit in a little clouded circle complaining to themselves, oh, this is rotten, and they just don't they won't they won't look around and see the glory that Aslan has created. And in I don't remember which of CS Lewis's books it might be uh, it might be The Great Divorce or something he has this vision of hell uh where people sort of persist persist for their own pride to stay in there and he has one where like Napoleon has got this little house in hell and all he does is wander it up and down stomping and blaming his many generals for for his ultimate defeat because he's so um attached right attached almost in the buddhist way to his uh worldly ambition and to the little things that seemed important when he was emperor of France and refuses to like go outside of his house and see the glory, um, made available, um, to him. Maybe hell, like, you know, we say in the creed every Sunday, he descended into hell on the third day. He rose again, he ascended Mm -hmm. to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. So if Jesus went into hell, right, he went there, he stayed there for three days. I imagine he just kicked those doors open. And like, you can come and go as you please. And some people will stay there because they just won't like, a, you know, like a sullen uh, adolescent. They are refused to do things on on the terms of of the God in, to whom they are in rebellion. But like, I feel like if you're a Buddhist and you live virtuously or, a you know, or a Hindu or a Muslim, when you die. And if our Christian version of the universe is correct, you will immediately see like, oh. Well, this part of what I believed was correct and the, and aligned, but these other things, well, God is um, slightly different than I imagine, and you will immediately run to your father, and mm-hmm. everything else will fall away. So we don't need to worry about. I guess be it feels like it's beyond our pay grade to to lecture people about heaven and hell, and how they better reform their ways before it's too late. As so many Christians, to my consternation, tend to do.
1: Right yeah and it in a lot of ways like I think that uh, the church teaches that those who are uh who the gospel has not been proclaimed to can still be saved now all salvation comes to the church right so it, it, how do you so the catechism in the Catholic Church has this doctrine that all salvation comes to the church but it also has the doctrine and understanding that um those who are ignorant of the gospel of Christ, but seek the truth and do the will of God in accordance with this understanding of it can be saved. And I think that's from uh, the catechism 1260. Those who are ignorant of the gospel of Christ. So, you know, so many people who have not received the gospel. um, And I don't think, I don't know, maybe I I would be projecting too much into um, what the catechism is actually saying, but certainly that would apply then to people who, have not been evangelized, right? Who, uh, yeah. like the Buddha himself, who to the best of his very ability uh, lived a virtuous life, tried to seek the good, tried to seek the truth and um, lived 500 years before Christ and never encountered any of the kind of uh, Abrahamic tradition. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it's possible that he could be saved. But also I think when we, we're talking about those who are ignorant of the gospel of Christ, when I think about my own life and my story, like, did I really know the gospel of Christ? Um, Excellent example. Yeah. I was baptized, I went to mass, uh, but I was not catechized. And I think there's so many like me, right, uh, the, uh, who have not really had the gospel well proclaimed, and reject it because of what they think it is. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, I was clearly seeking. I wanted the truth. I wanted purpose. I wanted meaning. And I just had no, for my own sin as, uh, so I can't be totally blamed <laughs> for my own sin, for my own fault, as well as from um, the, the poverty of the proclamation of the gospel to me, I did not see it in the church and I had to yeah. go. Yeah. And I think that we also believe our conscience is the word of God. Yeah. Um, so those who are following their conscience are actually following Christ, yet yeah. not recognizing or aware that that's what they're doing.
0: Yeah, if with that, with that, you know, it all falls into place for me. Like then, I see the fundamental justice of the universe, and it doesn't become a fickle, or you know, um, what's the word like contingent on. Uh, just the right circumstances or bad circumstances, or you had a good priest or a bad priest. Like it just, it's better than that. It's better than that. I mean, that think just, I just think of the way I would treat my own kids. Yeah. And I I have to believe God would treat us.
1: Yeah. We have, we have a good and loving father. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's not a reflection of us as fathers because I am so, but he is (laughs) the perfection of that, of what you just spoke. Like, he is the perfection of the the way a father would love his children, Um, even when they do things out of ignorance or even out of obstinance.
0: Yeah. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much, David, for talking with me this fine, beautiful day. And would you pray for our listeners and their families and the Ukraine and the world?
1: (laughs) Certainly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, Heavenly Father... I give you thanks this day for um, each and every one of our listeners, for Chris and for his family. I ask that you bless him, bless his family, bless our listeners. And just as you shower rain upon those who are just and who are unjust, we understand, Lord, that your love and your mercy goes to all people. And so we pray for those who are uh, victims um, in the conflicts throughout our world. for pray for all those in Ukraine. But we pray as well for the perpetrators of the, this violence and victims, and we pray for them to come to know um, the love of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Nails, spear, shall pierce him Through the cross be born The Babe, the Son of Mary Chris Odinitz and David Basil Recorded this conversation on Saturday, March 12, 2022 400 years after Pope Gregory XV Canonized St. Teresa of Avila St. Ignatius of Loyola St. Isidore of Madrid St. Francis Xavier and St. Philip Mary Our music comes from Josh and Margot Of the Great Space Coaster See their music at gscoasterband.com Our logo, the image of the dog, comes from a stained glass window from the Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Burgos, Spain, and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from english.op.org. I'm Chris Odenius. I thank you so much for listening to Almost Good Catholics, and I invite you to email me at almostgoodcatholics.com with any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. Talk to you soon. This is Christ the King, whom shepherds, God, and angels sing.